as American Christians, our relationship to politics and the political process tends to be a bit more complex. If you live here and you're a Christian, you know, it's just different. It's actually kind of messy. When you study the history of America, it's undeniable that the nation was founded on Judeo-Christian beliefs. Many of the values of America, such as charity, altruism, respect, tolerance, mercy, freedom, liberty, peace, are all historically rooted in the Christian worldview. So historically, America has been founded and guided by a Christian worldview, but culturally, America is not Christian in terms of its current attitudes and behaviors. The modern United States not only tolerates ideas contrary to Christianity, but it openly embraces and celebrates them. So here's the rub. In a nation that was founded by Christian beliefs, but is decidedly unchristian in its current culture, is the primary job of the American church and American Christians to actively fight to influence the outcome of elections and the political process so that America can return to her Christian roots? Or is it to stay away from politics altogether and focus only on making disciples and spreading the gospel? Is voting for a certain candidate or political party that supports the Christian worldview our primary Christian duty? And what if the results of a crucial election we participated in are disputed? How do we know what to do next? No, like that's a real question. Can you let us know? Because it's like we're still trying to figure this all out. Welcome, everybody, to the Beards and Bible Podcast. I'm your special guest, Matthew McConaughey. I'm just kidding. I'm not really Matthew McConaughey. I'm Josh. And that was the worst Matthew McConaughey impersonation I think I've ever done. What do you think? On a scale of 1 to 10, what do you think? Well, that's actually the only Matthew McConaughey I've heard you do. So I I can't, I don't really have a point of reference. I mean, it was pretty good to me. Typically, I try to work in a Matthew McConaughey impersonation at least once a week. Okay. All right. We got the yeah. same view. I can have Do you think one. that was a pretty decent one? Let me try it again. Hey, I'm Matthew McConaughey. You should drive a Lincoln. Is that, <laughs> is that pretty good? All that right, was. all right, all that right. Was. Yeah. Oh, how you doing, Gabe? I'm doing I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. It's uh it's good. We're on the other side of um of elections and we are uh Living, living the dream. Yeah. So you're saying life is less complicated, politically speaking, on the other side of this election than it was before, or? Oh no, I'm just completely lying to myself. <laughs> I was just, yeah. No, it's like 20, 2020. It's like when you know, as a history teacher, I, I teach with the textbook, right? And I have all these different, and they they encompass like one chapter in this book will will be like uh, ten or twenty years worth of information and, and facts and events. 2020 will be like it would be like 10 chapters long in in a yeah. to really do it justice it's it's amazing how much has happened within this year and we're still a month and a half away from it being over yeah yeah it's um it's definitely been a, a very interesting year it's been a year i think that i've grown a lot through it as as hard as that is for me to admit the text has been good for me i think god's been doing stuff in me through it um 
I think one of the things that 2020 has taught me, somebody asked me this yesterday or two days ago, they said, Hey, what, what have you learned this year? And I think I spend a lot of time, like a lot of people, uh, lamenting 2020, but they asked me, what did you learn this year? (coughs) And I said, um, I am learning, not that I've learned, I am learning to be okay with not everybody having to like me. Hmm. And that's the biggest lesson I think I've learned this year because as a pastor in 2020, we're responsible for leading people and people right now um, are probably more divided Mm -hmm. about pretty much everything. So like any issue, just take any issue, people are very divided about any issue. And some of them adamantly so. And so um, as a pastor, it's really naive for me to think that if I'm speaking God's word every single week and I'm standing for truth and I'm helping disciple people in the way of the kingdom, that everybody's going to like me. They're just not. And I got to be okay with seeking the favor and approval of God versus trying to get people to like me. And that's a tough lesson, but man, that's something that God's been working on me and using 2020 to help me with. Yeah. I mean, that's, Good point. I, I feel like as well, it's been a year of testing motivations. Um, mm. Why are you doing this? Um, and in a, in a year of lines in the sand, so to speak, um, you know, in every every facet of your life, it's kind of like, are, are, which side are you going to be on in this issue? Or, um, yeah, when I was a when I was a kid, my dad bought me a little boat, and we used to. Um, ride this boat all through these little canals that we lived on down in Florida and I would fish and, and just explore these canals and stuff. I'd be out for, for all day, you know, and this little, this little boat with a trolling motor and this hurricane came through one year and it flooded the canal behind our house. Mm. So I was like, okay, you know, only, only logical thing to do here would be get out in the boat and try to, um, try to navigate these flooded waters. So I get out there and not only that, but I, I have a rope, you know, towing my sister on a boogie board behind my boat, which is only powered <laughs> by a trolling motor in this flood canal. And uh, my sister is freaked out. This water is just like, just water is just gushing through this canal. So I get out there, push the boat out, and I'm actually maintaining, you know, I'm not, I'm not making any progress, but I'm actually maintaining. I'm, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm fighting the current, but I'm not gaining any ground. And my sister's back there and, and she's freaking out because she thinks she's going to die all of a sudden. She actually starts swimming over to the side and she gets hung up in this tree that had kind of fallen into the water. Oh, man. uh, The hurricane knocks it. She gets hung up in this tree and she starts freaking out saying, a gator's got me, a gator's got me. And that's when everything goes wrong and we have to like veer over to the side and and I start taking on water and all this stuff and it gets all chaotic at that point. But I I feel like that's kind of like 2020. I'm like, Mm. I'm I'm out here as long as no one really freaks out. We've we've got this. We can do this. We, you know, it's like the the current of this chaos. It's like, uh, you know, it's 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 a lot of pressure. But as long as we stay steadfast and and we don't fear, we don't panic. We can do this. We can. Yeah. It can really and and God will receive glory from from everything that has happened this year, regardless. But um, anyways, that that reminded me of that story. Yeah, no, that that's a pretty accurate description, I think, of what it feels like to be a believer right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're going upstream and you got to, at times, what feels like a trolling motor and you're kind of making progress, but uh, there's, a, there's a pretty heavy current coming against you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so like, what was that like for you? Walk me through uh, when you saw election results rolling in. 
last week. Like what? So what was like, I don't know what it was like for you, but for me, the entire day on Tuesday, I had just like this pit in my stomach. Mm-hmm. And you and I texted back and forth a little bit that day, but it just felt like the whole day I just had this like sense of, I don't know, just like the weight of everything and the anxiety of everything of just, mm-hmm. and I'm sure I'm not alone. I'm sure everybody that that voted listening to this probably, and that's probably normal, but what were your thoughts when you saw these election results rolling in last week? Oh man, I was um, I kind of kind of in two different two different phases. Uh, you know, I I was I felt the same level of anxiety kind of in my stomach as well, like on my chest. I just felt like um, this is going to be a heavy day. Mm-hmm. I remember you saying in that podcast, um, you know, whoever wins, I hope they win by a landslide, and that was kind of my prayer as well. And as we were watching, you know, I was like looking at the map and watching all these states turn different colors and stuff. And I was like, okay, it looks like someone's going to be a clear winner. That's, it's going to be interesting because I know there's a lot of, there's a lot of tension and there's a lot of, I mean, really hatred towards this person who's winning. And then um, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm just going to go to bed because it seems like it's pretty evident that there's going to be a clear defined winner. There may be a lot of riots on the streets. There may be a lot of unrest and stuff, but um I woke up uh, pretty early the next morning in that post-election night hangover <laughs> yeah. and, you know, just like looked at the results and was completely shocked at that point. Mm. How, um, there were states that were solidly for this candidate that switched over to the other candidate. And I thought, oh, no, this is not this. This is going to be a mess. And that's the, that's yeah. really what came to mind was like it, it felt like all of a sudden there was a nasty divorce happening and we are the kids and the custody battle has only begun it was <laughs> Dude, like, you're, you're like king of the metaphors today man oh i guess first of all you tell the boat story and then know, yeah that, that's but that's absolutely how it feels you feel mm-hmm. like you're in the middle of watching your family get ripped apart and there's no clear winner because it seems mm-hmm. like you know and that, that's the the biggest thing to me like candidates aside and politics aside um and who I wanted to win aside, our nation did not need a messy election. Our nation yeah. is so wound tight right now. And it, you know, it's like, like I said, all it needs is like one little spark and it's going to be a mess. And I, I hope we can, I hope we can avoid that. I hope that everything gets decided. I think December 14th is a day. Mm. Um, I, I've never seen this before. And I've talked to people <laughs> You know, talk to people who are much older than I, and they they have never seen anything like this. The closest huh. thing is two thousand with Al Gore. Yeah, I was about to say. Yeah, I, I remember two thousand. Um, mm-hmm. There being a contested election, you know, but you know, even back then, and and I remember following that pretty closely as a young guy. My dad was really into politics, and so we watched every single day updates on that and listened mm-hmm. to it on the radio and all that stuff. But even back then, like I remember even though the divisions were there, it didn't feel like they were as emotionally charged. Mm-hmm. And it didn't feel like there was as much identity placed into that. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Do you, do you, do you kind yeah. of see that? I mean, it just feels, it just feels like now it just feels very much like it's not just your candidate. It is your life, your everything, your very identity 
is wrapped between which one of those guys ends up being the leader of mm-hmm. the nation come de- January 20th or whatever it is. Yeah, it's your, it's your faith. Yeah. 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 It's, um, that's kind of, that's, it's very unhealthy, but we talked about a couple episodes back when we talked about the social dilemma, how a lot of that is fueled by social media and these, these algorithms that place us in these echo chambers um, and feed us the information that will keep us, that will mine our attention. They said in the, in the documentary, um, you know, we, I actually rewatched that documentary, the social dilemma last night for the third time. And I actually watched in a room full of 25 people, of varying ages. It was really fascinating watching that documentary after the elections. And we, here we are, you know, a week or two after the elections, rewatching that, especially the end where they talk about civil unrest and um, the the corrosion and erosion of of the democratic process because of social media, because of mm. algorithms that are running and, and keeping people, um, and and also because they said they said in in the documentary, "Give me ten million dollars, I can change one percent of of the population of the world," or "Give me ten million dollars, mm. I can change the outcome of this election using social media." And you know it's. It's mm. that level of control that's going on within some of these platforms. Um, so it was really interesting rewatching that last night after all this. And yeah, yeah, I absolutely feel that that's that's a huge contributor to to the divisiveness that's in the United States. Yeah, right now. I felt like this storm was coming. You know, like okay, I'll be the king of the metaphors. You're a Florida guy. You know, like before a hurricane comes, people like go to, to the store and buy boards and they nail up against their windows and plywood and all that stuff. And that's what I did on the Saturday before the election. I got off all of my social media, (laughs) just totally deactivated, deleted all the apps from my phone because I was just like, it's coming. Yeah. Like I just, I know it's coming. And like, I just, I just don't want to, I don't know. I I just don't want to hear the noise surrounding this. Um, I, and and so uh, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that social media has fueled probably a lot of responses and emotional ties. I think people have to the outcome of this one way or the other. Um, without getting specific, without naming names, without calling anybody out, what what has been your churches or the people you're discipling? What's been some of the responses that you've noticed, kind of right in the middle of this this mess that we're in, especially after Saturday? Mm-hmm called the election for for joe biden what was that yeah what was that like um mainly one of of optimism uh the people especially at our congregations is just been um you know it just seems like uh seems like optimism there's sprinkled with the people who are like um uh very disappointed but also in you know it's kind of like the five stages of grief um yeah, you know, and, and kind of in a point of denial. Is that one of the sages? Mm-hmm. Um, kind of, kind of at that point. Um, you know, this is. You know, it, uh, I don't know. So, not that uh, this is this is so hard to navigate because I don't want to say that they're in denial because, or, or, I mean, really, it's like. It is. It is still to a certain extent, like not completely buttoned up. Yeah, and, yeah. So I, I mean, the outcome has been disputed by one one party in the election. Right. So, right. So yeah. I don't, I don't want to say, I don't want someone to listen to me like, Hey, I'm not in denial because they're really, um, but I, I guess, um, really invested in the idea that their party is going to win it, even though, yeah. 
even though the mass majority of vast majority of media outlets are saying otherwise. So sure. I, I don't want to call that denial. I want to say I want to say maybe um, extreme optimism. Um, and but from from them, by and large, uh, great. Everything's hunky dory. Like we drive on, you know, with the mission, regardless. Yeah. But um, actually, I've had um, some of the more extreme response, responses from from my students that I teach at school. Um, you know, very very emotional responses from them. Hmm. Um, you know, because in both sides of the aisle, uh, right. So I've we've been talking about the election process and discussing how it all works and um, studying that and and following along and making predictions and stuff and and they were very so they were very educated on the process and they yeah. they surprised me actually. I've never had a group of students so politically engaged as I had this year. Hmm. Um, so when we started talking about it, they actually knew much of what I was going to teach them already. Yeah. They were very well educated on it. Hmm. So when the results came out, I had um, a handful of students that were uh, very emotional about it um, hmm. one way or the other, either either really upset and and full of anger or the opposite, full of like jubilation and and, yeah. and kind of like arrogant pride. Um, so it's interesting to see that play like out. And they're younger, you know, less mature, but sure. Yeah, I feel like that's that's probably been, um, yeah, that, that's been the response I think for folks in my church. Um, you know, of course, like we said earlier, the major media outlets called the election on Saturday for Joe Biden, and yet there is still a recount happening and. Georgia and several other states, there's an ongoing process of, of tallying up all the votes. And so, um, you know, we have church Saturday night and Sunday morning. And so rolling into church on Saturday night, I, I felt like just the, the temperature of the room in some places was just this varied mix of, um, for some folks, there was a sense of relief that, there was a winner that was called one way or the other, even if that wasn't mm -hmm. their candidate for some folks, <clears throat> there was a sense of fear and anxiety mm. um, because it wasn't the candidate that they would have picked. And so they were afraid and nervous about what was going to happen. Um, but for some, there was even a, and, and this comment was made uh, to one of our elders, um, I think on Sunday morning of just anger Mm -hmm. And and one of the responses that I was kind of troubled by was um, there was an angry response and then the language that we need to rise up mm. and um, yeah, almost language of like, hey, it's our time to almost we, we have to engage in another revolution or, or language like that. And, yeah. <clears throat> and so um, there was also a conversation that was happening. Um, that I heard over the weekend about someone within our congregation having a conversation with someone else saying that it wasn't God's will for Joe Biden to be president. And, um, that that's such a, a hard thing for me to hear because theologically speaking, like, um, we don't really stand in any position to look at the God of all creation and point at him and say, you got it wrong. Mm -hmm. This is not your will if this is what he does now, obviously it's far from over. So maybe it's not, but adamantly holding on to, um, 
this idea that if this is the outcome, then somehow God's mm-hmm. God's will was not done. I mean, what do you what do you what do you do with that? I mean, that's mm-hmm. <clears throat> kind of been the trickiness and the mess that we've been kind of navigating out here. Well, I think some of it is coming from you know some of the dozen or so videos that people forward me each month. Um, and you look <laughs> at it; it's, it's a lot of self proclaimed um, internet YouTube prophets that are saying things and making claims that they see in a vision, uh, this or that. And a lot of them will say, um, God's not done using Trump. You know, God's not done with, with his presidency. And they'll say, um, you know, he will, he will have four more years. And so you have these prophets that are quote unquote prophets that are, that are prophesying on the internet. And that appeals to people, um, because maybe they're his candidate or whatever. Yeah. Um, and we are, we're always, we're, we should do an episode on when, when false prophets fool us. That'd be yeah. Really hey, so, so side note, I was talking mm-hmm. with my brother-in-law about this yesterday. Does it seem like the word of faith movement, mm-hmm. like, and I'm not saying they're the only evangelicals that have been pro Trump, but it just, does it seem like the word of faith movement has kind of led the charge in being kind of the most visual evangelicals that are pro Trump or is that my imagination? I think, uh, yeah, they're definitely more visible. I, I, yeah. I agree. They're definitely. Well, it's because, especially right now, like I said, we're we're in the middle of that flooded canal, and we're we're panicked. We're we didn't, we we're looking for direction, and I, that's that's a great way to summarize. Kind of like the everybody right now is is looking for clear leadership, bold leadership, um, in direction. So when you get this video and the person in the video is saying, this will happen this way, I've, I've heard it from God yeah. and they're very convincing. They're very clear, articulate, effective communicator. Yeah. That's, that's powerful. It's, sure. Yeah. It, it can, it can take you to places that, um, are not healthy because mm-hmm. you don't know that person. You don't know, you can't judge them by your fruit because you haven't seen their fruit. You just right. seem, you know, you just seem And so it, it feels, I think, for people who may be discouraged and disenfranchised and disappointed, like a message of hope to have a, you know, seeming spiritual leader say, right. hey, don't, don't let the reality or the facts of what the media is saying, like, or not even facts, but just what the media is saying, don't let that influence you. This is what God says. And so people are like, oh, I'm, I'm holding on to what God says, you know? And yeah, yeah. But the whole idea of like God's will can't be done if Joe Biden is president. I mean, what what do we do with that theologically? Mm. <laughs> you you uh you get over it. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. God's God God's king of the universe. He's he's the author of creation and yeah, I think his will is perfect and we don't understand it and um yeah, absolutely. He can use he can use anybody he wants. He can use Nebuchadnezzar. Yep. Uh, to proclaim his glory if he wants. Yeah. So moving into this just mess of the the flooded canal that is going to be and already is <laughs> our churches and our Christian brothers and sisters, like if this continues to go the way that it's going and both sides are ha- are claiming victory and both sides are disputing the outcome of the election, um, what is our responsibility as Christians? What's our responsibility as Christian leaders? Is it to be like these spiritual leaders that, you know, turn on their iPhone cameras, they sit in their car with their sunglasses and proclaim a prophetic word that that our candidate 
is is the clear winner regardless of what media says and you know we're we're supposed to campaign and fight for that candidate because that's god's candidate and mm-hmm. is that what we're supposed to be doing right now are we supposed to be just <laughs> as political as possible to overturn the outcome of this election and speak to that what's our response uh, i actually made one of those videos yesterday <laughs> <laughs> you had your sunglasses on though right because you can't have yeah. a yeah 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 okay when, I don't know no, why they always have sunglasses on. I just don't know. <laughs> our our ability, our our, <laughs> our capability is the same same it is every day. And that is to pray for our nation, keep our head down, uh, teach our children, raise our families, um, disciple other people, study His Word, walk in His ways, and um, be holy because He is holy. That's that's a responsibility, and doesn't change because election election of the nation we just happen to live in. Is getting messy. Um, if mm. anything, if anything, I see that more as an opportunity than I do anything else. Mm. And Joe Biden being president, um, while that's not the Republican evangelical dream come true, look at look at any look at any time t- time period in history when the leader of a nation was in opposition both in lifestyle and and in policy to people of um, the Bible living within that nation, that Christianity flourished in that time mm-hmm. period. Christianity was pure. It was, um, it was doing things in the miraculous that um, drew other people to it. And then you, the, the converse is true. You look at times where a leader of a nation embraced aspects of of Christianity or made them state policy, the opposite becomes true, that Mm. the the church in that nation, if you can even call it that, became complacent and became impotent, um, became fat and lazy. So I think, if anything, um, we could look at this and turn it on its head and say, it's an opportunity because um, there's going to be people who are going to be looking for hope. There's going to be people who are looking for, for direction and answers and, and truth really. Yeah. And we have the source of all truth. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. Just the history of the Christian church in, in terms of historically how the church has been involved in politics. Cause you know, something that at the front of this episode we pointed out was um, America is a bit of an anomaly you know we're 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 200 years old just just barely over 200 years old we were founded on judeo christian principles we were founded uh by many people who if they weren't explicitly christian they were heavily influenced by teachings um of the bible and of of mm-hmm. uh you know at least the old testament law and so historically speaking our foundation and the the uh, practice of our nation spiritually has been Christianity, but most nations in which the Christian church has existed have not been like the one that we live in. And and several of our listeners right now, <clears throat> you guys are listening in from other nations. You're, we we uh, pulled it up the other day. We got people listening from um, a lot of Canadian brothers and sisters and people living in Europe and people living in um South America and other places where it's it's been a little bit different. Here in America, man, it's it's just sometimes we forget we are very, very, very much the exception. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
And in, in the first 300 years of the Christian church, um, the idea that Christians were to corporately express power in order to control political system, that probably wasn't even anywhere on their radar, right? I mean, they weren't even thinking about that. Yeah, yeah. Not, um, yeah. I would say that they 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 would even approach that, even if they were given the right to do that, they would approach it very cautiously. Yeah. Yeah, they, they were seen as um, subversive to the Roman Empire because their religion was in competition with the political ideologies and really the political religion of Rome, because that's what a lot of what Rome was. The whole statement that Jesus is Lord was a direct opposition to the phrase that Caesar is Lord. Hmm. And so the fact that Christians said Jesus is Lord and the fact that Christians worship Jesus and they wouldn't worship a political leader, um, that caused a lot of them to be seen as subversive and a lot of them to be seen as um, really like political enemies to Rome. Not that they were, but they were perceived as that because they wouldn't join in. Hmm. And so the church grew in the first 300 years, not by fighting for their rights, not by you know, coming together and exercising power in order to influence, you know, politics, but they grew largely by Christians being put to death. So um, the idea of Christians getting martyred, that word martyr actually meant witness. <clears throat> and um, it came to mean one who dies for their faith. So in other words, the way that Christians witness to uh, the power of God is that they were willing to be martyred. And so, this idea that it's supposed to be the Christian's primary duty to recruit other Christians together so we can corporately exercise power in order to influence elections, that, that would have been completely unthinkable the first 300 years of the church. Hmm. Um, and in other stages as well. <clears throat> so it, I, I don't know. I just think it's interesting how we've come to believe that somehow that's our main duty as American Christians when um, you don't really find that in church history. Um, yeah. We live in this unprecedented window in human history where, yeah, like you said, we have vast religious freedoms. Um, we have the ability to sway the, the outcomes of elections. We have uh, unfettered access to God's word and, and um, biblical texts in our language and, several, if not dozens of different translations of that text. And it's, it's so fascinating how, um, I, I think, I think yeah, I'm, I'm safe to say we are living in, in, in times mm -hmm. uh, like Daniel talks about knowledge will increase. Um, but what's fascinating is the, the Greek word used for, uh, the idea of like, of persecution or, or tribulation is it's the idea of pressing together as as like you would press like grapes together or olives hmm. in order to extract in order to extract the the contents of that so when you experience a tribulation um and i'm not talking about like the great tribulation that's talked about like in yeah. revelation but when you experience tribulation <clears throat> what it's doing is it's pressing you and others together it's hmm. forming a bond, a cohesive bond to where when you press olives and you put them in an olive press and you, and you, you smush them down, they can, they're completely indistinguishable from each other. But hmm. the goal of doing that, the goal, the outcome is that you get 
this oil and this oil that's extracted from pressing these olives can then produce light. Um, and, and that's wow. what we're called to be is to be, to be bearers of light. You are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Hey, so the garden of Gethsemane, doesn't that mm-hmm. mean something to do with the pressing of olives together? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, got shemen. So mm-hmm. shemen is, is, uh, is oil and the got is the press. So, it's the garden of the oil press. Yeah. So that same idea, the night before Jesus is handed over to mm-hmm. suffering and death, he's in the garden, he's praying, he's undergoing tribulation, he's being pressed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and he even it begins to to bleed out like a like an olive yeah. would bleed out. Yeah. So there's yeah. probably there's probably an oil press very close in proximity to to him as he's as he's praying. So yeah, that's yeah, neat connection. Yeah, it is. So I, I love that picture though that as Mm -hmm. the church was being pressed as she was being persecuted you know i believe it was um it was an early church father that said the the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church Mm. that the church grew in spite of persecution even because of persecution um even though they didn't have power politically even though they weren't accepted by mainstream culture um they had this belief that they could find power in weakness and in that weakness, in that being marginalized, in that being kind of, you know, pushed off to the corners of society and being excluded from, um, you know, the, the social influencers that caused them to, to care for their community even more. So um, I thought this was so fascinating researching this, Uh, the Romans first mistook Christians for a burial society Hmm. because they would collect the bodies of homeless people and bury them. Wow. Uh, Christians were in the first century decidedly pro-life. So a lot of early abortion would have been like in infanticide. So someone would have a baby and they didn't want it and they just leave it to die in the streets. And so Christians would come in and adopt children and raise them up. Um, they cared for people who were poor, uh, so much so that Emperor Julian, who was a critic of Christianity would say it's disgraceful when the impious Galileans support our poor in addition to their own. So the church was known mainly the first 300 years, not for being, you know, societal influencers in the sense of they were, you know, again, being power brokers in the political scheme. They were main, mainly known for, um, you know, taking care of the poor, burying the bodies of the homeless, adopting unwanted children, um, they offered this sense of community and meaning to those who would not have it any other way. You know, those people who were again, orphans, widows, the poor. Um, and, and so uh, that was the culture of the Christian church for the first 300 years. And it would have been really hard to be a Christian in the Roman empire. You would have been fighting for your life in many times. You would have been, you know, uh, you would have had it at all sides coming from you, probably from Jewish communities. Um, and then also from Roman communities, you would have, you know, probably seen people that you would have known your pastor, the elders in your congregation, you know, thrown in jail, whipped, flogged, maybe somebody, you know, unfortunately dragged off to the Colosseum to be um, a victim of, of murder there. What would have that been like? Like, what would that have been like when you'd get up and go to church on a, uh, you know what I'm saying? Like, what what, yeah. what would the feeling be when you go? I mean, it... oh man, 
be one of, I mean, you gotta be, you gotta be serious. Mm -hmm. Uh, you have to be, you, you, you will, you would have weighed out the costs. Um, but gosh, think about you know, right, right now it's almost, you know, in, in some communities, especially in the United States of America, it's, it's almost more politically expedient to, to be involved at a church and there's, mm -hmm. there's almost more benefits, um, physically and, and politically or business related to be involved at a church and, and kind of make your name known that way. Um, but back then you, you lost it all um, yeah. to be involved in a local assembly like that. Um, and you had to be willing to lose it all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm looking at this, this article here that the, the Hebrew equivalent of that Greek tribulation, it means to be narrow or compress, hmm. um, to be, it's like severe constriction, which reminded me, um, of the verse, uh, narrow is the way that leads to life. <coughs> and in other wow. words, um, you know, it's, it's going to, it's going to weed you out. Um, it's, yeah. like, it's like the, the wheat and the tares. Um, and I think, you know, if we enter a time of sifting like that, if we enter a time of narrowing and constricting, I think one side, we have to be very prayerful, very ready, um, very committed. But, and, but the other side, we have to be rejoicing yeah. because that is going to refine. That's going to purify. It's, it's going to um, perfect his, his, his bride that he's going to come back for. He wants to come back for a pure bride. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it would have been, um, you know, definitely difficult to, to follow Jesus. Obviously history tells us it would have been, but can you imagine just the beauty and the purity and the, I mean, those times together with other believers, if you're meeting underground in the catacombs in Rome or you're meeting in another believer's house, I mean, it would just be so precious. Mm -hmm. You know, you wouldn't take it for granted. You'd, you'd probably want, you, you wouldn't want it to end. You know, mm -hmm. you'd be complaining about how long the, <laughs> the church service mm -hmm. was. You'd be like, man, I don't want to go back out into, into the world. I, I cherish this time, this community mm -hmm. of, you know, this gathering of the called out ones, the ecclesia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 within that tribulation, there would have been a um, just a beauty that would have been created through that. They pro they probably still argued about carpet color, though. I think so. Yeah, they probably argued about masks too. I would think. <laughs> hey, yeah. I want to take this opportunity real quick and to thank our sponsors, Black Rifle Coffee. <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> I want to give a shout out to two people who've been listening. They went back. They found our, our podcast recently. And went back and listened, I think, to every episode and, and got caught up. And that's um, George and Jerry. And if you guys are listening, I want to say hello and thank you so much for listening. You guys are oh cool, are awesome. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for listening, George. And they, Jerry. they reached out to me and said we've we've really they really they particularly loved our our marriage episode. They they really appreciated that. So awesome. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, that's really cool. Always to hear of uh, listeners. Yeah, yeah, and it's 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 kind of weird hearing people say that they binge. Binge us. Not that that's weird. Like, mm -hmm. that's flat. That's awesome. Like, if you're, you know, but I've heard people go, man, I had, you know, a bunch of yard work to do. And like, I got eight hours of beards and Bible. I'm like, mm -hmm. that's terrifying. Yeah, that <laughs> eight hours of us and you're here. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and they, they particularly said that, that the podcast has strengthened their faith and encouraged, it strengthened their marriage and encouraged them in the, in the faith. And I mean, that was like so awesome to hear. And that's, that's where this, that's where it's at, you know. And I'm so glad that that has, 
that has a positive effect on your faith. And yeah, um, I hope that we can continue to do that. Praise God. That's awesome, man. Yeah. So, um, this was the culture of the early church first 300 years, not exceptionally political. They were citizens of the Roman empire, most of them, but again, to follow Roman politics usually meant emperor worship. And so Christians would not do that. This is why many of them lost their lives, but everything changed in the year 312 AD. Why, why, why Gabe did everything change in the year 312 AD? Mm -hmm. Our buddy Constantine. Yes. Keanu Reeves. (laughs) (laughs) Did we see that movie in the theaters together? Keanu Reeves. I don't remember. Constantine, don't. like the angel that thought it was a, by the way, if you're wondering like what that has to do with Keanu Reeves, it was a really stupid movie in the early two thousands about, he was like a fallen angel that fought demons or something. It was really dumb. Was it Constantine you were obsessed with? No, it was Charlemagne that you were obsessed with. <laughs> oh man. I just remember. Charlemagne. I just remember you uh, sitting, sitting bareback on a, on a giant lion statue yes. at a local park. In a video dressed like Charlemagne. Well, we got to give some background for that. The reason is there was a church history class that one of our roommates was a part of, Ryan, and he had to do a presentation on Charlemagne. And so he was like, Who is the most regal looking, noble looking person I know? And for whatever reason, he picked me. I don't know why. But oh, um, yeah. yeah, yeah. But we had this really, <laughs> really ridiculous yellow wig like mm-hmm. blonde hair or whatever. And then like a crown that went on top of it. And the movie that we made, like as part of this class project was the most like low budget. <laughs> it was so dumb. And it was basically us acting out all these scenes in the life of Charlemagne and then going back and overdubbing and narrating it to the Braveheart soundtrack. And it was so stupid mm-hmm. and hilarious and it's out there somewhere. It's rolling around somewhere. So anyway, I, th- I think we should redo it with Constantine. Yes. Emperor Constantine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so why did he change everything in AD three twelve? the emperor of the Roman empire? He was converted to Christianity. Now we say converted, but here's the, here's the rub with that. Historians are divided as to whether or not it was actually a genuine conversion because Christianity in the first 300 years had flourished even as Rome was persecuting it. So Christians, some historians estimate like up to 10% of the population of the Roman empire Mm. and growing even more. And so um, a lot of historians are kind of divided. They think he he was, he was more of a a power seeker than he was a genuine, uh, you know, a, a genuine seeker of, of God. And so, he he kind of um, blended paganism with Christianity. And so as a matter of fact, a lot of the Christian holidays that we know, like in terms of the dates for the Christian calendar, like December 25th for Christmas and um, the date we have for Easter and things like that, a lot of those Wait are... <laughs> Wait. Uh-huh. Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. Explain that. Like those Christian mm-hmm. dates of the calendar... Those oh man, don't be don't be putting okay. me on the spot without putting your some, without putting your aluminum tinfoil hat on and telling us if yeah. you if you have any complaints about what I'm about to tell you, please email Josh. 
<laughs> well, just real quick, well, give us a cliff notes. Okay. Like, how well, did Charlemagne blend pagan? Charlemagne. Or not Charlemagne, Constantine. <laughs> <laughs> I got Charlemagne on the brain. Yeah. Um, how did how did Constantine blend pagan practices with Christian ideologies? And mm. yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's just really politically expedient if you're if if you got one huge group of people in your empire who are going one direction and the other group are are antagonistic toward that. If you want to retain power, you you kind of unite the two groups, and the best way to do that, I think, is is to claim the faith of that one party while, while kind of catering to the other. Um, so yeah, the Romans were used to, to worshiping, um, at, towards the end of December, which would have been, you know, like the winter solstice and everything. There's all, all kinds of pagan festivals that around the world around that time, as the days begin to get longer again. Um, so that was a Roman practice at that time at the end of December to, to, to you know, they called it Saturnalia, which was like a week long festival. Mm-hmm. leading up to the winter solstice, which kind of floated around a little bit, but typically landed around December 25th. And then um, Easter, um, it, it, Easter's a little bit more obvious because it still kind of retains its name a little bit. The goddess Ishtar, which is a goddess of fertility, mm-hmm. um, is, is ancient, you know, appears in all kinds of ancient um, cultures. But, you know, that's where we get like the bunny rabbits and the eggs and stuff and symbols of fertility. Yeah. Um, are, are dealing with Ishtar, which Ishtar was a, a, a well, um, what is the a busty, um, <laughs> statue of, of this yes. goddess of fertility. So, but that's kind of, and we just kind of reupholstered those in church history. We kind of, we've taken and, and put a, a new set of, um, upholstery over top of that and, and made that, um, it's called syncretism. It's kind of something that mm-hmm. wherever Christianity goes, it kind of happens a little bit. But. So there was a blending essentially of pagan religion, and the ideologies of Rome with Christian imagery and symbols. So yes. not just with the dates that Romans were used to celebrating and having holidays said, Hey, you're still going to do this, but you're just going to instead remember this mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. event that happened in the Christian calendar instead of the, you know, Roman pagan celebration of this. And then the, the big temples that were used for Roman worship, you know, so you might have a temple to the God Zeus or, Mm-hmm. Um, all these things, it was in, it was then converted into a basilica. Mm-hmm. So whereas Christians would have met in catacombs or in rooms or, and if they had like a, you know, especially tolerant city, they might have a, a small building dedicated to Christian worship. All of a sudden they had these massive buildings that were ornate and beautiful because Rome had built these temples uh, for for worships of gods and goddesses, and all of a sudden it was, hey, here's your building now, and here's the beautiful architecture, and here's all the ornate altar and the you know the vestries and all this stuff, and that would have been pretty foreign to early Christians. But then Constantine came along, and that was again the the norm of what he came to do. He came to blend kind of the you know Roman ideologies and all that stuff and even pagan religion with Christian imagery and symbols. Yeah. It's kind of like he mainstreamed it. Yeah. You know, it's like, uh, it's like when your favorite, um, underground punk rock band gets signed by, (laughs) gets gets signed by like Sony records or something like that. And you're like, ah, you sold out. And they're like, all right. And now your guest artist is going to be, I don't know who's popular right now. Who's popular. 
Well, I think Cardi I mean, B, she's going to be singing <laughs> on the next. <laughs> and it's like all, all these, all these Christians who were Christians before became mainstream. They were like, I, I was into Christianity before. It was cool. I promise. Yeah. I promise. You know, <laughs> look at my t-shirt. This is like my, t- you know, yeah. I was in the green day before they were sold. <laughs> how we did in high school. Yeah. 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 yeah so uh, the big legend about Constantine's conversion is that he had a vision before an important battle. And he was told in his vision, this is again, Constantine's words, that he was to paint Chai Roy, so the first two letters, the Greek word for Christ, on the shields of his soldiers, and allegedly a voice in his vision announced by this sign, you shall conquer. So Constantine legalized Christianity in AD 13, and because of its association with him, this religion exploded in popularity. The Roman Empire became more tolerable for Christians, the Christian church, but in the process, like we mentioned earlier, Pagan religion and the ideology of Rome blended with Christian imagery and symbols. But what happened more than anything, and this is kind of the unfortunate side effect of it, is Christianity became intertwined with political power and Christianity became intertwined with military might. So again, early church is known for being pro-life, taking care of widows and orphans, providing community to disenfranchised people. Um, you know, sharing the gospel with people and inviting them to these underground gatherings and everybody's gathering together at home, risking their life to um, proclaim that Jesus is Lord. And all of a sudden, within a very short amount of time, it was the official religion of the Roman Empire. And you had, within just a couple of generations, Christians killing pagans in the name of Christ. And so the militant church of Rome began to extend its power. Um, and, and again, like going back to our boy Charlemagne, one of the things that Charlemagne would do mm-hmm. is roll up on a, on a city or a town and, and announce to everyone, unless you become a baptized Christian, we'll kill you. Wow. And so it's incredible to think, okay, so how did it, so first 300 years, you had this amazing pure movement that looks so much like the teachings of Jesus and within really 70 years, between eighty three twelve and around you know eighty four hundred or so, it then becomes this like distorted, weird, syncretized mix of mm-hmm. military might, power, uh, pagan religion blended together with this thing that looks so 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 different from what Jesus spoke of. His kingdom was supposed to look like, and even the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, there's a a historian named Stephen Patterson. I'll read what he says um, about this. He says, since the moment Constantine made the cross his personal talisman, the sign under which his troops would always win, the cross has been both the symbol of martyrdom and murder. Soldiers' declarations that they were willing to die for the cause also brought them a license to kill for it. Hmm. And so... <clears throat> if you follow church history, what you notice happening around 8400 up until really the, the Protestant Reformation is <clears throat> Christianity shifted towards being more about power, loose cultural association and external public practice in the sense that it became socially advantageous for you to be a Christian. Um, and that became the focus of Christianity rather than what it was for the first 300 years. And that was inward transformation and discipleship. 
And so things like political posturing, power brokering, manipulation, nepotism, all that stuff kind of followed the church over the next several hundred years up until, you know, the Protestant Reformation. And again, there were there were movements of genuine uh, genuine followers of Jesus within that. I don't want to discount that. But by and large, Christianity basically got hijacked by this cultural movement. And, and really, after the Protestant Reformation, you, you had um, the separatist and Puritans in England that were trying to purify the Church of England, leave England to come to the United States of America to find freedom of religion without government disruption or government intervention. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's what they wanted. They didn't want the government so intermingled with politics, or excuse me, the government so intermingled with the church that it kind of sullied the purity of the Christian movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I, that's look. Look at China, for instance. You've got the underground Chinese church, the real church in China, and then you've got the state-approved <clears throat> church in China. Um, one of my friends, uh, Jim, lived in in China. I think up to ten years, nine or ten years, as a missionary, and interacted with all of that, the different dynamics, and how much of the persecution and um, much of the uh, I don't know, ratting out of the real church came from members within the state sanctioned church. Mm. Um, so when he would get in trouble as a missionary, bringing the gospel um, to people on the streets, it was because someone from the state sanctioned church like likely followed him and then reported him to the authorities. Hmm. It's really interesting. Whenever it seems like whenever the, the state um, joins forces with the church, bad things happen. Yeah. So do you think, Let's just like say it out loud. Do you think the church's willingness to allow politics to intermingle with her values was was that responsible for some of the atrocities we see, like in the Crusades and the Dark Ages? Is that a direct result of that? Uh, yes, I would say, um, especially the pogroms, where uh, in the Spanish Inquisition, uh, where we took large. Jewish communities living in Europe um, and said that said to them convert or die kind of situations or convert or leave Um, that happened, you know, 1500 years all around Europe. Um, Yeah, I think, I think that's extremely sad and, um, you know, disgrace. It's, uh, you know, it, it sullies, like you said, the reputation of our Messiah, sullies the reputation of the gospel. Um, and we should not fall prey and be guilty of doing the same in any way. All right. So let me ask you this next question. Mm-hmm. So is the answer to stay away from politics altogether? Mm. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think the answer is to be engaged politically, yeah. but, but not with a lot of skin in the game. Um, in other hmm. words, what is the extent of our power in the political system? The extent of our power really, when it boils down to it, is to cast a vote for ourselves and within our immediate sphere of influence, um, help others be educated, but we shouldn't be, we shouldn't even be telling people how they should vote even within our sphere of influence. Like my students begged and begged the day I walked in on Tuesday with an, I voted sticker on my, on my shirt. They begged and begged to know who I voted for. And I told them, (laughs) you will not, you will never know who I voted for. But what I will do is I will teach you history um, and I'll teach it as objectively as I can teach it to you. Yeah. And that's it. And then that's all you need. Um, well, so, yeah. 
I, I mean, I, I, I don't think we should be disengaged. I think <clears throat> I think we should, like I said, we just cast a vote and, and kind of keep our head down. Yeah, I, I think there would be many listening to this um, that would agree with you and I and our our conclusion that we should be engaged, but maybe they would disagree to the level of our engagement. Mm-hmm. So in other words, I, I feel like I have received more pressure, especially over the last two or three months, from folks that have wanted me to leverage the influence I have, what little influence mm-hmm. I have. I'm, I'm a <laughs> pastor in a small <laughs> rural town in, you know, Woodbury, Tennessee, right? Which, by the way, there were only 13 registered Democrats in the whole county of Cannon County, Tennessee. Just want to throw that out there. So anybody that thinks that my voice is going to swing the vote one way or the other is is delusional. So, but many were, were wanting me to leverage my influence, to leverage my power to rally the church together to actively fight to influence the outcome of an election. Mm-hmm. And it was almost presented to me like, this is your Christian duty, Pastor. This is your hour. You have to step up and you have to get your church to all cast a vote towards candidates that are this, are this, are this, are this. I was sent a um, stack of voting guides from, uh, I think it was from some organization that was like, you know, Christians and engaged in politics or something like that. But anyway, it was an organization of all the pro-Christian candidates. Hmm. And it was like, I was supposed to pass these out to my congregation to tell them, essentially, here's who you need to vote for. Yeah. And and I just, I had such a hard time with that because I was just like, man, I encourage my folks to vote. I encourage my folks to pray. I encourage my folks to be engaged. But my job as a pastor, as I understand it, is to teach the Word of God, love the people of God, and shepherd them in the way of holiness and righteousness and discipleship. Not to influence the outcome of an election towards rallying everybody together. Let's be power brokers and rock the vote towards one cause or the other. And and I don't know if I'm missing something, but I mean, what do you, what do you think? Is that? No, I think you're doing a great job. I think you just teach the word of God. Keep keep telling me I'm doing a good job. I need encouragement. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I have an interesting perspective because I moved from Florida, which I was born and raised in Florida all my life. And then I, I crossed the border into Alabama and I lived in Alabama for about two yeah. Roll Tide. <laughs> Roll Tide. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I'm I'm at the point now where like culturally, I was clueless when it came to Alabama sports, Alabama politics. I had to Google <laughs> what does Roll Tide mean. I remember what, you came in my office at uh, at the church here last summer when you visited. And I have a Georgia Bulldogs flag hanging up, and uh, your son uh, was like, "Oh yeah, Georgia. Yeah, Georgia. Auburn." Auburn, Georgia, and like he was like learning the language of like SEC football and stuff. And, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I thought that was pretty funny because he was like brand new to it, so he was you know recognizing yeah SEC football. So yeah. well, Florida, Florida is just not into its football. Like Alabama, I would think it is like Alabama, and Georgia, are like football capitals of the world. Yeah, but you know we. So I had to I had to learn the language of football being in Alabama, but also with this election cycle. This is my first election cycle being an Alabamian. I had to figure out, or at least attempt to figure out, Alabama politics. You're like, okay, so who is Tommy Tuberville? Yeah, yeah. you don't know Tommy Tuberville. Yeah, War Eagle, man. I I feel like I had I had the mindset that we should have as believers. Like I was like coming to it like I'm kind of new around here. Kind of give me a brief backstory. I was asking other people, who is this person? You know, what is their deal? Uh, You know, 
and getting all these different sides of the story and stuff kind of coming as a new guy to this deep, you know, kind of somewhat messy political system that Alabama is, you know, with these good old boys and this and that mm-hmm. you just like, you know, it's kind of like what you see in movies, you know, it's kind of that deep South. Um, everybody's kind of greasing each other's palms kind of thing. And there's, there's a level yeah. of corruption in Alabama politics that kind of surprised me. Um, not all politicians in Alabama are corrupt, but so anyways, I kind of came to it and I was kind of came to it kind of objectively that way yeah. and realize, you know what, I'm just going to vote for the people I know. And then the people I don't know, I'm clueless about, I don't want to get involved with. And I'm just kind of, I don't know, I'm just going to leave it blank and let the chips mm-hmm. fall where they may. Um, and that's kind of where I went. But I was, I, I came with a, a level of disconnectivity to some of that stuff. And I think that's kind of how we need to approach national politics as a whole as well as kind of approach kind of feeling like as as peter puts it um in first peter 2 he says you uh, you are sojourners and exiles Mm. um abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul and then he says in verse 12 keep your conduct among the gentiles honorable so that they when when they speak evil against you they will see the, your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So I feel like in Alabama, I feel like a an exile and a, and a sojourner in Alabama. You know, I'm like maybe <laughs> I, ten years I from now, I would, as a Georgia native, I definitely would feel like a sojourner in <laughs> exile in Alabama. Yeah. So what would you say to somebody who comes in your church and says, "Hey, Pastor Gabe, my primary Christian duty and your primary Christian duty as pastor of this church is to vote for a certain candidate." It is to rally for a certain political party. If you're not doing that, you are not, you were made for such a time as this, right? I've heard that so many times, you know, it's our time to stand up and rise and God, you know, has put all these things in place for us to stand up and unite and, you know, all this stuff. What do you say to someone that says my primary Christian duty is to support this candidate or to support this political cause? I would say you wrong. (laughs) Wrong. And that's, you can, you can support that candidate all day long. That's fine. That's good. I think you should, um, <clears throat> cast a vote. You've been given a, an unprecedented amount of freedom and, and privilege to be able to cast a vote for a candidate. Um, but no, our, our primary duty is to be obedient to God's word and to yeah. conform our lives around that of our savior. And, um, you may be completely checked out of the political system and that's, that's, that's fine as well. But, um, you know, I, I think you can vote for a candidate a million times over, but if your kids don't know the gospel and can't defend the gospel, Amen. Um, you've failed. Amen. You, you have failed. Um, do, you, do you think it's just lazy discipleship for us mm. to get so consumed and caught up with the political process that we're forgetting to spread the gospel, we're forgetting to love our neighbor, we're forgetting to disciple and raise up our kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord? We just basically tell them, hey— Here's all the conservative causes. Yep. Believe these things and cast your vote for this person. Keep your nose clean and you're going to be okay. Is that just lazy discipleship? I, I think everybody's different in their motivation, but certainly there are people that are like that. It's just a kind of, kind of a cop out. But um, I think people people are genuinely concerned in some, some ways, you know, like looking at the issue of abortion or um, how they relate to uh, Israel and how our country is going to connect with Israel and support Israel and things like that. That's a, on the forefront of a lot of people in our congregation's minds. Um, and I think those are valid concerns. Uh, so like I said, look at, look at way out how much power we have 
and don't extend beyond that. And our power really is just going in and filling in a bubble with a pin and turning it in. Um, because really, if I get on social media and I post a bunch of stuff about my candidate on social media, really the algorithms are just going to send that to somebody who agrees with me. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of pointless. I mean, yeah. Really, at the end of the day. All right. So landing the plane, let's shift gears. Mm-hmm. We've alluded to all these things, but I just want to say it out loud if someone's kind of like, what election? What's going on? What are you guys talking about? All right. So <laughs> undeniable facts, regardless of how you feel about them. First is major media outlets around the world have called the election for Joe Biden. That's an undeniable fact, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Second is the Trump campaign is alleging large scale voter fraud and disputing the outcome of the election. All right. That's undeniable. The third undeniable fact is there are a lot of Americans who are relieved that Joe Biden won. And they're, like you said, some of your students are almost gloating. <laughs> But there are many Christians that think Donald Trump is more sympathetic to pro-Christian values. And he was their candidate, for better or for worse. And that leads us to the fourth undeniable fact that I am encountering in my congregation. Maybe you are in yours. Maybe someone listening to this is encountering this. Some Christians now have the belief that our civic duty and our moral responsibility as a Christian is to fight against the election results, to pray against the lies of the media that's reporting a Biden victory, and to essentially rise up against the powers that be and fight for the candidate that is the most sympathetic towards Christian values. And that's our job. Now, that's, that's kind of the state of the messiness of where we're in right now. Right. Here's why I'm bringing that up. Here's my concern. We have all the makings for a civil war. Yeah. I mean, just, just however you want to call it. I mean, somebody may call it me being dramatic. If you study the civil wars that are happening in Ukraine and Syria, most of the time, all of these elements are there. Election that's disputed by both sides. You've got people who are sympathetic towards this, sympathetic towards that. You've got major cities that are completely destabilized by writing. You've got insurgent groups. You've got social media riling people up. (laughs) So how do we as Christians right now navigate this? And let's say like it, it does break out into a civil war. Is our job to take one side? I mean, what do we, what do we do about this? How do we, how do we encourage each other to keep focused on what's really important in this, this mess that we're in right now? Well, if you think about it, we kind of already are in a civil war, uh, digitally speaking. Yeah. We have been for quite some time, you know, bullets aren't being fired. Um, I remember, uh, I took a, a class in college on civil war history and we were reading this book. I think it's called April 1865. And it talks about when the civil war broke out, people didn't really think it was going to be a real war. People didn't really know yep. what to expect. And so you had all these soldiers come together and meeting in these fields um, <laughs> and all their wives and their children and the townspeople would come out and they would have a picnic on the side of this yeah. field and they would watch. Is that the battle of bull run? That was the, yeah, there was, there was one like where, a bandstand and people were, yeah, let's watch the war, which is such an American thing to do to capitalize <laughs> on, capitalize on, on brothers killing each other. Yeah. But um, anyways, these bullets started flying and people started getting shot and people in the crowd started getting shot and, 
they took off running and stuff. And it's like, they, they were like, wow, this, but anyways, it's like, I think, I think we are, I think we are engaged in civil war. It's just, it's a different type of warfare that's going on right now as a nation. And um, so we could answer that question right now. I think there is a, a warfare um, happening in America, digitally speaking, um, that, that is, we, we have to decide what is our role? Do we pick sides? Um, or do we proclaim an eternal king, an eternal kingship that transcends all of this mess? Um, I like Psalm 9, 7 through 8 says, but the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment and mm. he will judge the world in his righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. Mm. And I think with all of this stuff, you know, like, what do we do? How, how do we interact with the lies and the recounts and all this? I think we just pray for his justice to be done. Yeah. Pray for his perfect equity and justice to be done. Pray for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Hmm. I can't go wrong with that. Yeah. So if like Polycarp of Smyrna, one of the early church fathers that died in the Roman Colosseum, if somehow he could get magically transported to America in 2020, what would he say to American Christians right now? If someone like, you know, took him in a green room and said, Polycarp, here's the situation. There's this guy named Donald Trump. There's this guy named Joe Biden. Here's what's going on. All right, Polycarp, go out on the main stage of this mega church. And there's, you know, 10,000 Christians out here. They're looking for encouragement, support. Tell us what it is. You were discipled directly by the Apostle John. Tell us what it is we're supposed to do, Polycarp. What what would he say? Hmm. <laughs> that is a tough question. Uh, it's interesting say, to think about, isn't it? He'd probably say, uh, close out your social media accounts. <laughs> he'd probably say, stop eating food and pray. Yeah. Pray for your nation. Fast and pray. Yeah. Pray for pray for people um, to hear the gospel. And pray for God to be glorified through all things. Yeah. I don't know. Is that a good answer? I think it is. Okay. I mean, I, I'm not a, you know, that's a pretty, uh, pretty big responsibility to try to assume what Polycarp of Smyrna would say to the Christian church right now. But I, I would imagine it'd probably be something like that fast and pray mm -hmm. and, and love. Yeah. And right. Disciple people. Love and disciple people. Polycarp of Smyrna was infamous for uh, when he was arrested to be taken to the Colosseum to be burned alive. Um, the soldiers that showed up to arrest him, they showed up to his house and he was in the middle of praying and he was an old man. And, uh, before they arrested him, he said, well, can I make you something to eat? Hmm. And they were like, sure. And he made him a meal and served them a meal and ate together and like, like asked how they were doing and, you know, prayed for him and asked their stories, wanted to get to know him and had a meal with them. And then gladly surrendered himself to them so they could take him away to the Coliseum and burn him at the stake. Wow. And it's amazing to me, the kind of rhetoric that I've heard from Christians about people who, disagree with them politically that they're cheaters and liars and mm -hmm. there's so much hatred just when because you, somebody cast a different vote than us or somebody doesn't know who Jesus is or somebody who, you know, may be voting for something that is anti-Christian, but they're deceived. Yeah. You know, 
And then we have a whole other whole other story of, you know, you can you can pry my gun out of my cold dead hands, you know, like Oh that kind of, Lord like, Jesus help us all. Uh, we got a long ways to go. Why did you open that can of worms right as we're ending this podcast? I'm sorry. We're gonna get nasty letters from people that <laughs> Just try to take them from me. And it, it really, it, it really boils down to the, the idea of syncretism. Is we've we've synchronized the biblical Christian faith with, um, with our constitutional republic, our our, you know, the the United States of America and the political system of the United States of America. We've synchro- synchronized that, and we've made it. We've made that our faith. The so same, like the, yeah. Rom- the Romans yeah. did, like we talked about with Christmas and Easter and all that stuff, and Constantine did with that. We've done with, with, um, with, with, you know, Daniel Boone and Davy yeah. Crockett and, yeah, yeah exactly. and manifest destiny and, the, and this yep. kind of ideas. Like we've completely synchronized that. Um, but yeah. Hey, by the way, really good book I'm reading. Um, it is part of the, you and I have read, um, our boy Bill O'Reilly, which, not a fan of his just as a person, but he wrote some really good books like killing Lincoln, killing mm-hmm. uh, Kennedy, all that stuff. He just put out one called killing crazy horse. Really? Oh dude, it is fascinating. It is about um, the war against like the merciless Indian, the merciless Indian wars in America is, is mm-hmm. the subtitle of it. But um, I just started it a couple of days ago and it's about like uh Manifest Destiny and Davy Crockett and General Jackson's wars against the the Creek Nation and Alabama. You would love it because it's like all these towns in Alabama that have these Indian names. Like you see the history, like the Fort Mims Massacre and all these other crazy stuff. But anyway, but here's the thing. Crazy Horse was, is he Lakota? Yes. But they start with, so the book starts with the Creek Nation battles and it goes up to President James Monroe. But here's the thing, like if you believe that somehow America has always been just like a perfect Christian nation that has been, you know, the the city on the hill upholding the values of Jesus Christ, don't read this book <laughs> because you're going to get a history of our nation that's a, um, yeah, it's going to completely shatter your idealism when you find out like what we have had the practice of doing for a really long time mm-hmm. and yeah, I read the chapter about Andrew Jackson and uh, being a Tennessee resident right now, seeing kind of how he was like shooting guys in duels and uh, mm-hmm. having a temper and all that stuff. So anyway, fascinating stuff. Yeah. So yeah, he was he was quite the jerk. He was, but he was kind of a uh, he was a bad mama jamma man. Dude <laughs> had two musket balls like lodged in his arm and his chest for their, all of his life. He just like. Yeah, he just kind of dealt with it. So, America. He would have been like, COVID? What's COVID? <laughs> I've got some Indians to fight. So, anyway. Well, Gabe, I, uh, I feel like we've uh, tackled this topic fairly well. And I don't feel like anybody is going to ever disagree with us about any of these things that we've talked about. No. How could they? Oh. You know? No, yeah. Yeah. I mean, what could go wrong? We're up at five o'clock in the morning on a Thursday yeah. about politics. Not a not a single thing could go wrong. But if you do have any questions, concerns, or cries of outrage, or you uh, feel like we're both heretics that probably need to be exiled politically, you can email Gabe Rutledge mm-hmm. at um, Juno.com. <laughs> Juno. No, send us an email, beardsandbible 
podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Um, in all seriousness, if, if we have said something today that maybe you disagree with, that's okay. Uh, we love you anyway, and we're fallible human beings that are trying to navigate through this just like so many of you are. But I hope you're doing it on your knees, asking the Lord to give you wisdom, and I hope you're doing it with your open Bible, uh, seeking God's wisdom through his word. So, Cool. Anything else, Gabe? Nope. Thank you, everybody, for listening. It's been real. It's been fun. But not real fun. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thanks for listening. That's our show. If you like what you heard, make sure to give us a share, leave us a review, or send us an email at beardsandbiblepodcast at gmail.com.